morning's Bible reading is from Romans 8, verse 1 to 18, following from 28 to 39, and then question from the Heidelberg Catechism with the answer, starting from verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in, Jesus, in, in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who would raise Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those laid by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those who knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What, then, are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or prosecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question in the Heidelberg Catechism is stating, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer to it is, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready for now on to live for him. As I mentioned earlier, we're starting today on the head part of our preaching program. I will use the Heidelberg Catechism as a guide through this. For centuries centuries it has been a core doctrine summary for Bible-based reformed churches like ours. Today we're starting with question and answer one, as Marlene just read to us. And immediately we have a small problem. Let me explain. Back when I was at high school studying ancient history, we studied the plays of the ancient playwrights from around 400 BC. One of them was Aristophanes, who wrote really funny comedies. We had a good translation of one of them into English, and probably not the most accurate translation, but it captured the comedy of the play, and we loved it. I can still quote bits of it. Later on, a friend found another translation. This was a very serious scholarly translation, which I'm sure was much more accurate but it was as dry as dust, completely boring. It might have been literally accurate, but it lost the comedy of the play, which was the whole point of the play. Now, if Christian translations are prone to a particular fault, in my opinion, it's that they can sometimes be overly serious about being precisely accurate and miss the force of what's being said. And so it is with this first Heidelberg Catechism question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Particularly the word comfort. Now the Heidelberg Catechism was written in the 1500s. Our translation dates from the 1970s, but it was intended as, quote, a modern and accurate translation. I'm sure it's accurate, but perhaps a bit too literal, because the word comfort has changed its meaning since the 1500s. The verb comfort originally comes from confortin, which meant to cheer up, console, soothe when in grief and trouble. 
It came originally from a Latin word, confortare, to strengthen much. As a noun, comfort way back then meant a feeling of relief in affliction or sorrow, consolation. We do still use the phrase to take comfort in the sense of consolation. But it's very different to how we usually use the word comfort today, isn't it? We think of a comfortable lounge suite, the comfort of a soft cushion, a comfortable car that rides smoothly along a bumpy road, the comfort of a good mattress and a soft pillow. These are trivial things, personal luxuries. It's not that type of comfort that the Heidelberg Catechism is talking about. So its question is more like this. What is the one thing that consoles us, that makes us feel an internal well-being when we grieve or when we're in trouble? What is the one thing that strengthens us no matter what situation we're in? What is the one thing we can take comfort in in whatever troubles we face in life? What is the one thing that strengthens us throughout life and when we face death? That's what the question means. So, having sorted out the question, let's look at the answer. In the worship booklets that are handed out, you'll notice that there are Bible references to the, for the statements in the Catechism answer. These are just examples of where the doctrine comes from. The same things are said in many places in the Bible. Now, you'll notice that several of the references are to Romans chapter 8. And in fact, Romans 8 is one source of most of the things said in the answer. So what I plan to do is to take us through Romans chapter 8, not covering it in massive detail, but just looking into the parts of the chapter that are a source for the doctrine in the Catechism answer and then applying it to what it means for us. But just before we start, that the one exception is the very first part of the Catechism answer about belonging to Jesus. That comes from passages like 1 Corinthians 6 from verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Being bought at a price is a reference to slavery, which was a routine fact of life in Bible times. Slaves could be bought and sold. They didn't belong to themselves, they belonged to whoever bought them. And so it is with us. Before we turn to Christ, we are effectively dead and we are doomed to destruction. When we turn to Jesus to save us from that, it is his death that saves us, or as we say, it is his blood that saves us. That is the price that he paid. That's the price he paid for us. It cost him very, very dearly to save us. It cost him his life. In that sense, he bought us and we belong to him. We no longer belong to ourselves on our way to eternal destruction. Instead, we belong to Jesus and we inherit with him all the blessings of eternal life now and forever. It's a paradox. To be truly free, we must belong to Christ. So that's the first part of the Catechism answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, on to Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. All human beings are inherently rebellious against God. We want to do things our own way, and we think our way is the best. And we make up our own rules to follow, rules that have nothing to do with God. This breaks our relationship with God. 
the relationship we were designed to be part of. The consequence of that broken relationship, ultimately, is destruction. We actually are not able to live without God, even if we think we can. Everyone, even the most evil person in the whole world, relies on God every day for his or her continued existence and for all of the things provided for us in this world. But when we die, our choice is locked in. If we choose to have nothing to do with God, we face an eternity completely without him and without everything good that he provides everyone with. It is a terrifying prospect. And the more you really think about it, the more terrifying it is. Verse 1 calls it condemnation. And it's not because God is cruel, it's simply a consequence of our own choice if we reject God. On the other hand, if we accept God's gift of Jesus' death in our place, when we die, that choice is locked in. And we can look forward to an eternity of blessing in God's direct presence. All that is another way of saying what these first two verses say. If we put our faith in Jesus, we are not condemned to destruction. Instead, we are set free from that and we have eternal life. The law that is mentioned in these verses is the Old Testament law, a set of rules describing the perfect life that honours God. But no one can keep that law perfectly. We are all weakened by the flesh, as it says in verse 3. That is, we are weakened by our humanity, our inbuilt rebellion. And so the law became treated as a set of rules, with more human rules put around it. We actually all love rules. We can just keep the rules, tick all the boxes, and think that we're pretty good people. But as verse 2 says, such rules lead to destruction. But God sent his son Jesus, who perfectly kept the Old Testament law, didn't rebel against God the Father, and so he didn't deserve to die. And yet he was sacrificed as a sin offering, it says in verse 3. And that means he took the consequence of our rebellion against God. He died so that we don't have to. When we trust in Jesus, God looks upon us as sinless, unrebellious. And we are freed from a life doomed to destruction, instead enter into an eternal life of blessing with God. And with that we have just covered this part of the Catechism answer. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Next slide. Actually, no, my mistake. Not next slide, yet. Paul spends some more verses spelling all this out, but then we come to verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Because we are saved by Jesus, we are no longer locked into a cycle of rebellion against God, a sinful life that leads to destruction. Instead, we are set free from that. We receive God's Holy Spirit within us, and we are adopted as God's children for eternity. Sin, rebellion, evil, Satan himself, these things no longer have ultimate power over us. We are free from them. The Holy Spirit helps us in our ongoing personal struggle to turn away from our inbuilt rebellion and follow God's paths for us. And so we have the next part of the Catechism answer. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all of the power of the devil. Continuing to verses 14 to 17, we read this. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters, 
For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, or since, indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are adopted as God's children. You probably know that Abba is from the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke, and it's the very personal way Jesus himself addressed God the Father. It shows that we can have a similar, very personal relationship with God, like Jesus has. God's Spirit comes upon the Christian to live within us, and in verse 16, he testifies that we are God's children, continually assuring us and reassuring us that we are bound to inherit eternity with God alongside Jesus. And with that, we have the end part of the Catechism answer. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I think it's common for people to feel unsure about being saved. Often that's because people don't feel that they're good enough or they wonder if they've jeopardised their salvation somehow. But you can set those worries aside. Being saved isn't about what we do or don't do. It's not about following rules. It's only by faith, deciding to trust that God will accept Jesus' on, Jesus' death on our behalf. Don't worry if you're inclined to do things your own way rather than God's. We all are. Provided we hold on to our faith in Jesus, our salvation is assured. This Bible passage, tells, this Bible passage tells us that and the Holy Spirit within us confirms it to us continually. Obviously, we should be trying to follow God's ways in how we live. That only makes sense. But we have to acknowledge that no one does that perfectly. Only Jesus did or ever could. You see, salvation isn't about feeling good enough or doing enough or feeling certain. It's about deciding to trust in Jesus' death on our behalf and then taking God at his word that that's all we need to do. It's what we choose that matters, not what we are. It's what we choose that matters, not what we are. God knows what we are all too well, but he chooses to save us through Jesus' death on our behalf. In a sense, it's that easy. And in a sense, it's that hard. I want us to move down to verse 28 now. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We often quote verse 28 as an assurance that God is in control of everything, don't we? Even when we go through tough times or when bad things happen to us or to people we love, we can trust that God is working these things together for good. I've said before that we can't always see what that good is when bad things happen. Personally, I find that sometimes I can guess what the good might be. 
Sometimes I look back on tough times and in retrospect I can see the good that God was bringing about through them and sometimes I still don't know. But I've seen his good at work often enough that I'm prepared to take him on trust for the times that I can't see. And not that it's up to me to judge though. God is in charge and he does what he chooses to do in his wisdom, justice and love. So verse 28 is a great comfort in the full sense of the word comfort. But let's look at the context. What exactly is the good that God is working all things together for in these verses? The following verse tells us it's for us to be conformed to the image of his son. That is to become more and more like Jesus. That is the good that God is working. That is very specifically the good that God is working. When God works all things together for our good, it's not to, oh, I don't know, keep us prosperous or keep us physically safe or keep a roof over our heads or whatever. He may do those things, but it's not what these verses are saying. Rather, God works all things together to grow us to be more like Jesus. That's the good that he is working. The next verses spell it out in more detail. God chose us Christians before we were born and he calls us, then justifies us through Jesus' death on our behalf and that will result in us, when we die in this world, being glorified alongside our brother Jesus. For those of us who love him, God works all things for, together for the good that we will be progressively changed into the likeness of Jesus. Now, God delights to give us good things, things we think of as good. It might be relationships, friends, opportunities, possessions and so on. But that's not his primary purpose. The good he works together for us is to progressively make us more like Jesus. That's the most important thing to God. And it's the most important thing he can do for us. He's getting us ready for heaven. He's getting us ready to be with him in glory for eternity. And what is better than that? And with that we have covered another point in the Catechism Answer. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Let's move on now to the final wonderful verses of this chapter. Uh, from verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Skipping to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, recon Paul recognises that bad things may happen to the Christians. In verse 35 he gives examples of affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or physical violence. Quite a list. But none of these things can separate us from God's love. God is all-powerful. 
in verse 31, seeing God is for us, there is no one that can stand against us. God went so far as to give up his own son to save us. So he's not going to let anything else get in the way of our salvation, is he? He has paid the ultimate price for the ultimate victory over everything and everyone that would try to rob Christians of our salvation. Also, there's nothing we can do that is so bad that God will cast us out. In verse 34, Jesus himself intercedes on our behalf, speaks up on our behalf. His sacrifice covers all our sin and rebellion. There's nothing anyone can accuse us of, in verse 33, that will change that. This is the ultimate expression of another line in the Catechism answer. We belong to my faithful Saviour Jesus Christ. We've already marked it in green, but these verses really emphasise it. Jesus stands in the place of power at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us, stands up for us, against any accusation of things we've done. He is faithful in the highest place. Looking again at verses 37 to 39. In verse 37, we are said to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that this is in the past tense. He loved us. Now we know that God loves us still. So this verse must be referring to Jesus' death in our place. He loved us so much that he died for us. It's done. It's in the past. And we are conquerors as a result of that. Conquerors over anything and everything that would try to tear us away from God. We are completely safe with God forever, in life and in our death from this world. This wonderful promise covers the final lines in the Catechism answer. Firstly, it emphasises the third line. We can be sure that we belong to Jesus both in life and in death. And it also supports the lines... He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Down to the tiniest details, like the hairs on our head, there's nothing in the universe that can prevent God from preserving us. Obviously, the hair on my head is a reference to Matthew 10 from verse 28. I'll just read that quickly. Jesus said, Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. That's another passage that's talking about not being afraid of any of the powers ranged against us. God cares about us and protects us. The final verses in Romans 8 ram home the very same point but on an epic scale this time. For I am persuaded that nothing that for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to return to the catechism question, what is your only comfort in life and death? That is, what is the one thing that strengthens us through life and when we face death? We belong to Jesus. He is faithful and we can completely trust in his death in our place. And if we put our faith in him, we are absolutely sure that we are safe with God forever. Nothing can tear us away from God's love and he will preserve us through everything. He will work things together so that we will progressively become more and more like Jesus 
until we take our place for eternal life with God in his glory. And with that as our destiny, naturally we will want to live for him now and all of our days. That is our comfort in life and death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and mercy. It is beyond our imagining, the graciousness and generosity you pour out upon us, undeserving as we are, even going to the extreme of sacrificing your own dear son in order to make a path for us to salvation and an eternity living with you in your glory. Thank you, Father. Help us by your Holy Spirit to set aside, continually set aside, the rebellious thoughts and actions that are our nature. Strengthen us in our desire to love and serve you in thankfulness for your great love and mercy. We pray this in the name of him who made it possible, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.